So this evening, I'd like to speak about trusting our natural potential for awakening, our natural potential for resurrecting the uh, beautiful qualities of our hearts and let them, uh, allowing them to shine. So first I'd just like to acknowledge how it is for us because I think we come to a place like this because we're all wondering what's really going to help us on our path. And we're all different. We all have our unique ways of walking that unique path that's unfolding for us. How can we keep going and keep navigating our way and not give up on ourselves? So I think a lot of us have some version of that, uh, no matter how long we've been on our path of practice. We all face a lot of ups and downs, and there's uh, no way else to say this, but these are turbulent times. We're experiencing change in such um, many different levels of our life, changing of the earth, there's climate change, there's huge changes in our political situation here and also in other places of the world. And on the cushion, when we find ourselves sitting, we see a sense of uh, great turbulence, at least most people do, that are really honest with uh, themselves in, in practice. And Mark and I see that also in our lives and those close to us. So how we interact with ourselves and in the world is really important. How much awareness are we bringing to it so that we can be more settled in the awareness of what's going on rather than in what awareness is looking at or is reflecting. So that's a big question for all of us. And so many outer conditions are activated or triggered, um, are triggering these inner conditions that kind of um, react, sometimes respond wisely to the outer conditions of life. There's a lot of uneasiness, so I've been in the teaching world um, for about 20 years and in the yogi world for about 40 years. And I've never seen so much unmooring, you know, from, from a deep sense of inner stability. But I've also seen a great deal of courage um, and an ability to kind of uh, be on a steep learning curve and, and actually be okay with that and, and take the the challenge of doing that. There's a lot of loss on many levels, a lot of fear of loss too. A lot of um, loss brings sorrow and grief and makes us wonder, how are we going to navigate this path? What qualities do we need to reactivate in our own hearts and minds to do that? So there's this feeling sometimes, I don't know about you, but this feeling of being lost in a wilderness of um, confusion. Like there's so much, every level sometimes coming towards the heart and mind. And uh, every morning I'm, I'm just seeing that I'm going to, I have to pick the first thing that I'm going to do, the first thing that I'm going to face. And I'm, I am actually a pretty courageous person. But it's hard. It's still hard to do that. So I just wanted to say all that because um, I think that you all see that Mark and I kind of deal with the teaching aspect of our lives as being on on a level playing field with all of you. It's not we're talking down to you. It's more like we're with you in this. We really feel that. And sharing from our real humble experiences with you, what what we're facing and what we're doing with our lives. 
So there's a real wilderness that we're living within. And um, I would say for myself, a sea of vulnerability in me sometimes. But that vulnerability can also bring up a great strength, you know, more faith, more courage. And so it's an ability and a willingness to take it on as well. And sometimes knowing that you can't take it on. It's just not the right thing. You just have to... um, I think I heard Mark say today or yesterday that when the dukkha or the suffering is too much, you just have to respect that it's too much. And maybe you have to stand back and take a break. And while he was saying that, I was remembering, because I live on an island and near the ocean, and sometimes, you know, the the people of the land, the Hawaiians, would say, you have to respect the water. And know when the waves are too big, you just don't go in, right? You just don't go in. Or sometimes I'll go in a little bit and think that, this is all right, you know, it doesn't look too high, but it's a huge kind of undertow, and you don't even see that. So sometimes you really, out of wisdom, out of compassionate wisdom, you do have to stand back, take a break, take a breather, um, respect the, the dukkha that we're facing, and not engage, not engage in real practical ways. The news nowadays is so kind of compelling and we can get, I can get so obsessive about, well, you know, like what's the next tweet coming up, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. And just wondering what, what all that is about and just having to exercise a lot of restraint and say, I don't need to get into that. So it's respecting, respecting the amount of dukkha that we can take because we do live in this sea of vulnerability of these changing circumstances. And it takes a lot of faith. And sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes I know I just have a tiny bit. I really don't at the moment have a lot of faith because of conditions. They could be absolutely practical conditions, like I didn't get enough sleep the night before. I was on a plane all night or just didn't get the right food because of traveling here and there. Or just plain old working too hard sometimes, you know, getting things done that need to be done in, in my field of, um, of life. So this is a poem by um, David White about faith. And it expresses, I think, what a lot of us feel, at least uh, my own life as a human being sometimes. So he says, uh, I want to write about faith, about the way the moon rises over cold snow night after night, faithful even as it fades from fullness, slowly becoming that last curving and impossible sliver of light before the final darkness. But I have no faith in myself. I refuse it the smallest entry Let this, then, my small poem, like a new moon, slender and barely open, be the first prayer that opens me to faith. So sometimes it's like that in our lives. It's it's not so much, but it's just enough, you know, to take that next step that we have to make. So we're all here together uh, because we have a lot in common. We have this karmic, shall we say, karmic gathering because each one of us is on this particular spiritual path of awareness because we have some deep intuitive intelligence that this is going to help us. And to a certain degree, for each one of us, we know that it has or or we have some faith that it has based on someone else's faith, so we're here. But most of us are pretty... um, uh, you know, strong walkers on the, on the uh, path of life, if not this particular path. And we know that we're looking, we're curious about what we can do, what um, qualities we need to open to. So we may express it in different ways, but we have the same common yearning 
Now this yearning, um, I'll explain a little later, is, is a beautiful word in Pali, that ancient language that the um, teachings were first expressed in. And that word is samvega. That's the yearning for liberation, the yearning for transformation. Uh, whichever, you know, whatever sliver of faith you want to take uh, towards that transformation, it could be total transformation, enlightenment, purification, or it could be just being able to take that next step, to open to the next thing that we need to open to, that next layer that's coming up, that's really shouting out at us, that's saying, will you please look at me? (laughs) And it's okay to bring awareness right here. So it's that yearning to actually touch those places so they can be known and not be left in the darkness. So that yearning is called samvega. It's spelled S-A-M-V-E-J-A, G-A, samvega. And it's that yearning for release from suffering. And this is not that wanting that's going after things that are causing suffering. This yearning is towards the end of suffering. So we're here on that path because of that, together. We want to be more peaceful within ourselves so that no matter what stones are thrown into this mind and heart pond, um, no matter what stones are thrown into it to destabilize it, there's a, some sense, some maybe sliver of faith that we know that it may get ruffled for a while, it may feel like it's kind of drowning us in you know whatever it is for a while, but we have some sense that it will come back to stillness because maybe we've seen a moment of that. It's said that, you know, we as yogis, we can go through like the whole retreat can be 99% like real difficult dukkha, but there's only maybe 1% of that moment or one little moment or a few moments that's like really peaceful or really that place that you reach that's beyond... um, the dukkha, or before it. And it's that moment that brings us back again, right? We're always looking for, how did we get there before, you know? Where was I sitting? Should I, oh, that same person is here. I'm going to sit next to that person. (laughs) I mean, those are things I look for, too. I drank that much tea before. Maybe I should this time. There's... All those same kinds of delusions in my own mind. So even though it's just that little bit that we've experienced or that little bit of overwhelm, we know that it could come to some peace. And there can be more and more and more of that. So those are things we need to remember because those are faith-inducing things. To remember how we have before crossed the flood of the defilements. And how before, or even this morning, we were able to get through the morning feeling somewhat um, successful about reaching a place where even though there was a lot of difficulty, there was an ability to be with it. And that's even better. That, That little sliver of experience is even better than the calm that comes because we're developing courage during that time. So the ripples we know will quiet down and return to clarity and stillness. We, we do have that bit of faith, and we need to tune into that a lot in our practice. We have the common together, we have this common yearning to be more content with life. Um, not that we need everything that we want to get, I mean, that would only encourage and inculcate more and more wanting, which is a lot of suffering. So if we can be content with what we have, um, there's a lot of ease in those moments. So some things to, to kind of not just notice moments of calm, not just moment notice or remember moments when there could be this overcoming 
or this ability to be with really hard times, in inwardly and outwardly hard times, but to actually notice moments when you're just okay. And recently, in, in recent years, I made it a practice to, even when I would be walking from the car to the doorstep, I would make it a practice to, when I get out of the car, it's just like you know how you be mindful. You you decide to be mindful when you're turning on lights. Have you ever done that? You know, in the we used to say that a lot before, but we're way <laughs> past that now. So I still do little things like that, where maybe I get out of the car and I say, from here to the front door, where there's you know beautiful foliage around. At night, I can look up and still see the Milky Way where I'm at or look out and see the shining lights on the shoreline or other islands in the distance. And I can look up and say, this is beautiful. I feel really content right now. It doesn't matter what I was worried about before I got out of the car or what I'm going to face when I open the door, but just going from that place, maybe that's 15 steps, to really notice the mind's contentment Right now, I'm really okay. Actually, I feel pretty content. And notice, you know, gratitude for what I can see, hear, smell. Um, beautiful um, flowers on the trees that give off their scent at night. I mean, there's so much in life, really. So these are kind of ways that you can remember that you're, you're actually okay. You can have faith in life. To remember those little things is, are huge for us. So we can enjoy the passing experiences and not cling to them. You know, they're just bits of happiness and delight and faith in the moment, remembering those, not getting addicted to them. So bit by bit, we gain this ability to be with painful experiences and and not flinch. Even if we're not flinching for one minute or 30 seconds and just being with that pain in the body or that pain in the heart when you remember something and it's really debilitating. We all have that in one way or another. So um, just remembering that we have that ability to do that, are ways that we can practice having faith in ourselves. So as we deepen in our awareness practice, we, can, we become more aware of the times when we are having that wholesome yearning to be free. And we, we have that wholesomeness in that yearning because we know it's, it's not like a bad thing that we're doing. We're really um, kind of looking forward and seeing the unknown and being able to take that step where we, we don't know where it's going to land. But we're able to keep going to one more moment of awareness, to one more moment of opening, no matter what we're opening to. So <clears throat> it sounds like... I. You know, I have to say this all the time because it sounds like that, you know, I can really do it all the time, but I can't. And so, but I do have a lot of faith in myself and in the practice. Um, But I, I still need a lot of help, you know, to keep going. And that help, a lot of times, is to bring that continuity of awareness to my moment to moment experience. I was saying to one of the groups today, just remembering that all of uh, our teachers, in one way or another, the teachers that um, we have um, been on the path and shared together, and some of you also have shared, um, Seda Upandita and um, Utejaniya, mostly them and... um, also, Manindraji said that the secret to the practice is continuity. And so we, why we need faith so much is that 
It's faith that helps us have that continuity, moment to moment. And it's helpful to tune into that faith that maybe in moments you don't think you have, but you really do. It's just kind of like an an old echo saying, I call it empty echoes that are bouncing against the walls of habit that are saying, you can't do this. You know, that it's not possible for you. So we might experience that powerful, powerful word called samvega as spiritual urgency. In its deepest meaning, that, that's what it is, spiritual urgency. It's urgency to really be free. Like somebody was talking about it today, because we're all getting older. I mean, even those of you who are younger, you're getting older. Uh, when I was your age, some of your ages, I, I can't hardly even tell anymore, you know. Um, the whole, my whole life was ahead of me. And so it was like just looking forward to, and now most of my life is behind me. And so there is that urgency that, you know, it's true. Like our teachers used to say, really use your time wisely in retreat because you never know if you can come back again. You know, time is marching on. And so we we feel that, and we really uh, have that spiritual urgency, some of us. That spiritual urgency is um, to be really totally free. In the, in the Dharma world, the Dhamma world, it means to be free totally from greed, hatred, and delusion. Not just a little bit, but total liberation. I mean, some of us do have that uh, aspiration. This is one of our senior uh, Dharma teachers, Larry Rosenberg, who was the head of um, Cambridge Insight Meditation uh, Society, said, Samvega leads to the conversion, the freeing of the heart from an egocentric existence to a search for what is timeless, vast, and sacred. And even though we can't put it in words as we're here together, some of these words, some of these ways of expressing it can really hit our hearts to know that Oh yeah, when when I heard this at first, I thought, yeah, that's the way I really feel about my spiritual path. It's like I have as much devotion to my own spiritual path as I have had to raising my children in in life. And and I must say, there's you know, there's been a lot more dukkha inwardly than I've seen outwardly in my in raising my children it's much it's much more challenging in a way how many of you have children so i hate to discourage you i'm not really <laughs> um, but you know a lot of what i've done on this path why i'm on this path is because i wanted to be a good mother and and to really be more and more aware and to bring more compassion And it has brought that um, to me to some degree. Somebody wrote a note today because of what Mark said and said, oh, please tell more stories about your children. (laughs) So I see why there's lots of parents in the room. But even so, you know, I know like uh, Mark and his wife, Wynne, have a huge community that they are, um, and others in, in their group that they are stewarding along. And so, in a way, we all have that, even if you're not a parent, right? You're uh, stewards or, uh, of people on the path or people in your family, or people that you're helping. So, um, I, I, remem- I just remember this poem like two minutes before I left my cottage, because I remembered this story about my youngest, my eldest daughter, uh, Rona, and it's okay that I tell this about her. And um, it was um, the first time we came to America, and I'll tell you that story a little later. And I was alone with my three children. I was a single parent with the three children. It was the first Christmas 
that we were having together. And so I thought, oh, this is, this is an in, important moment, and so I want to record this. So I took out the, you know, the tape recorder that was in those dinosaur days, and um, I asked my children, each one of them, well, when you grow up, what do you want to be? I was, you know, trying to look to the future because we were all alone in our lives. And um, so I asked the youngest one, and she was um, just turning two. She was not yet two years old. And she said, I want to be a nurse. She wanted to be a nurse. She kind of knew that at that age because she had a, when we were in the Philippines, she had a nurse for, that took care of her. I lived in a very prominent family. And so um, she wanted to be like her. And so then I asked my son what he wanted to be. And actually, I can't remember what, what he said. <laughs> it's my age, but I can't remember what he said. But it's something really sweet. He, he was the most, uh, of, of the three, uh, two girls and a boy at that time, he was kind of the most angelic one. Probably wanted to be something like a priest or something like that. And um, then I asked the eldest one, who was probably five at the time, or almost six, and she, she, I said, Rona, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she, she looked at me and she said, well, I want to be me. <laughs> and I said, well, why? And she said, if I'm not me, who will be? me. You know, that has been a teaching to me for a long, long time. And, um, and so all of our lives, that's what we're, we're just becoming more and more who we really are if we really take this path to heart. And we really accept the challenges that were, you know, karmically given, uh, not just karmically, but socially and all of the things that kind of push us to go through and pass the edges of where we think we can only be. So, a beautiful poem by May Sarton. Now I become myself. You know that poem? <clears throat> so I, I think this will speak to a lot of us as because we've gone through so much, each one of us in our lives. Now I become myself. It's, take, it, it's taken time, many years and places. I have been dissolved and shaken, worn other people's faces. Run madly as if time were there, terribly old, crying a warning. Hurry, you will de- be dead before is what you said. Before what? Before you reach the morning or the end of this poem is clear. Before that, now to stand still and to be here and to feel my own weight and density, now there is time and time is young. Oh, in this single hour I live all of myself and do not move. I, the pursued, who madly ran, stand still, stand still, and stop the sun. So that's what we're doing in our practice. We're not really stopping anything, but we're being still enough and aware enough and allowing for the depth to come up to be faced so that it can be seen, so that awareness the light of awareness can shine upon it. And it doesn't have to be under a rug or in a closet or in the darkness and not seen. So this is what's happening for us. And it's a process, you know, a process that we really need to trust. This is a process that when we remember the, the beings of all throughout history... And it's not just the Buddha. There are many great beings that have come through difficulties like we're facing on the cushion and during our time here. 
um, that have been able to bring the light of, of awareness, the light of faith, the light of courage, the light of compassion to every moment that we're opening to. And it made them better people, people that were able to go out and help the world uh, even more, more and more. So the Buddha likened faith to a seed. Seeds are put into the depth of the soil, the earth, and these seeds are like our faith, going into the unknown, into the depth, into where you can't see sometimes. And from there, these seeds send down roots into the ground. And the roots take nutrients from the darkness, from the depth, and um, from the soil that it's planted in, from the minerals and the rocks and the water. And from that, it starts, you know, gaining strength and pushing upwards towards the light. And it's said that the conditions that support and nourish faith, like seeds, are really beautiful qualities that we can have, like compassion, generosity. Faith is one of them. Trusting the laws of cause and effect. Just understanding that if we plant seeds of wholesomeness, they're going to grow into seeds, other seeds of, that'll bring forth wholesomeness. So we stay steady, we plant the seeds of faith in our teachers, we trust in the teachings, in our ability to be with things as they are, as they arise. And finally, those downward shoots have enough energy to send up a sprout through the soil, bearing fruit, bearing flowers, and then fruit. And then we're able to partake of that fruit. So these are the, this is one of the qualities of faith that we all understand from our own path, that um, we plant the seeds of goodness, we plant the seeds of loving kindness of, that we did this afternoon, we plant the seeds of compassion for ourselves and others when suffering comes up, and they sprout in like manner. So we can trust that. So we all have this aspiration for ourselves to um, go beyond the basic needs for survival and really aspire to something that we value deeply. And what is it for us? Each one of us, we may say it differently, uniquely, but we might aspire to having the value of being unconditionally loving, no matter what's happening. And I've seen that transformation somewhat in my lives, and maybe you have too, where maybe something difficult has come upon your life, and you were still able to open to love and care to, and connection with that person, even though, or condition, even though that condition or that person was really... Um, a difficulty for your life, that you're still able to keep your heart open and, as Mark was saying in the metta practice, to be able to still connect and to see the goodness in that person. It's interesting, you know, as we do the metta practice, one of the um, things that I'll bring out tomorrow, I love the way that Mark brought out uh, certain qualities of the metta practice today, And tomorrow I'll add on other qualities. And one of them is to be able to see the goodness in ourselves and see the goodness in others. And it's actually a way that I've experienced that it's hard to close down my heart because of this training in seeing the goodness in another person. So even though there have been um, uh, situations in my life where it would have been totally um, the way it is for a lot of people because of conditions to close down your heart that I could keep my heart open and say, I still see the goodness 
in that person. And um, I can still have care and love for that person no matter what. So it saves us from the dukkha because I have faith in that, in that particular teaching. It saves us from the dukkha of hostility and disconnection and feeling lonely or feeling alone. So I I aspire to that more, to more developing that more in my life, to generosity, the value of unconditional love. So faith is like a spiritual compass. It's like the North Star for us in a way. It's like, this is where I point the high, what's the highest value for me are qualities, those particular qualities that will get me through life and get me to um, transcending these difficulties and actually experiencing transformation on a deep level. So this is a really a, di- a dynamic process And as we face those difficulties, we wake up dormant qualities uh, within us that really um, shine. And usually, you know, in life we're looking at, we're taught a lot to open to the difficulties um, in kind of like Western civilization or um, psychological understanding, you know, to look at what's stopping you or what is the difficulty within you, and even in the Dharma, it's seeing the hindrances and being able to face them, of course. But there's this whole area that we need to open to as much or even more, is to look at the beautiful qualities like faith and compassion and generosity and really find that place in our hearts that, that they're really there. And sometimes we find them because we have to face such difficulties that it pushes us to the edge and we have no other way to go but to have faith or else, you know, we don't want to live anymore. And sometimes I've felt that way. How many of you felt that some, in some way you felt, it's not like you want to take your life, but you felt like it would be okay if I didn't wake up tomorrow. I mean, today is such a bad day that if I didn't wake up, it would be totally okay. How many of you have felt that? Right? I mean, we do really want to wake up underneath. And, but we do have that feeling, of course. So they say that the precursor or the proximate cause for faith to arise is suffering. It's interesting. That's in the Abhidhamma, the proximate co- uh, cause for faith to arise is suffering. So why would that be so? When, you know, you would think that there's so much suffering in the world, a lot of people would have faith. Well, actually, <laughs> actually they do when you look at it, right? I mean, I really appreciate so many of the ways that um, faith is nurtured in, in many of the different religions, to have faith in some ultimate being or to have faith in... Um, some higher self or some way that self is like this connectivity with all of life, whatever it is that we have faith in to keep going or faith because um, maybe we just need to have enough faith to take the next day on because we're raising children and we know that we need to do that. So there is a lot of faith in the world and there is a lot of suffering. And what we discover about faith is that, about suffering, is that it pushes us to an edge sometimes. And in order to go past that edge, we have to have some faith that we can take the next step into who knows what. We don't know where it's going to take us. But we have to take, there's no other way, we have to take that next step. And so... um, if we don't take that next step, then there's no way out. You know, there's no going back. There's no standing still in a way. We just have to take a step. 
So it's really being willing to look at everything we have, all the beautiful qualities, and to take those and to take the step with those qualities. Like the one time that I went to Burma, I told this, I've told this story a lot. Many of you have heard it. Um, when I first went to ordain as a nun, the first time, when I went to the teacher Upandita, and he said, "Why did you come here? It's so far away that." You know, the food isn't something that um, is good for a Westerner all the time, and um, the weather is hot, etc. And so I said, well, I've come here to purify my heart. There's, it's just my yearning to do that. And he said something that was really unusual that I've never heard in, in even a similar way with other teachers. He said, you must be willing to invest everything you have in the Dharma, in your practice. And I thought, now that doesn't mean he wants me to give dana or something, you know, um, from my material resources. So it, it took me just a few seconds to realize he's asking me to really acknowledge the strength that I have within me. All the beautiful qualities that have been developed to some degree, in some not very much, and really use them and to acknowledge what they are. So as I look back on that time, I realized that many times when I went in to do my interview, my check-in with him, he would bring out a quality, um, you know, that maybe he saw that I was having. He would ask me, what is equanimity? Or how have you been practicing renunciation? Or bringing um, up into the light the persevering effort that I was having. So just really highlighting those beautiful qualities. So it's said that faith is like a hand, and it seeks out what's beneficial in your spiritual life. So it's, it's like that seeking is like a reaching out, but it's not like, a, like that grabbing or that clinging that's about attachment. It's, it's going out to seek out what, what is beneficial. And these are the things that the Buddha said was beneficial to faith. What we seek out is spiritual friendship or wise counsel. Another one is opportunities to hear and read the Dhamma. Another one is opportunities to practice with this kind of support, like in retreat. Anything that inspires us to go forth and to carry out our highest aspirations, things that we value most in life. So, these are things to remember when we want to kind of um, strengthen our faith. Sometimes we have to borrow it from reading the scriptures or um, hearing the Dhamma or anything that inspires faith. So um, right before I came here, uh, there was a, a Catholic nun who came to practice on the land She's a friend of mine. So she came to practice on the land and stayed in the, in the little cottage we have on the land. And uh, she stayed there for just a week. She goes around the world. Um, she's a, a Mary Knoll nun in that order. And she goes around the wor- world helping other nuns be able to do their work because nun- those nuns in that order sacrifice a lot. They go through to you know, God-forsaken places, and they help people that are really in trouble, that are starving, or there's a lot of violence in that area, in places of Africa, South America, uh, different places in the world. This is an African-American Indian uh, woman, this nun. And she was um, telling me about what inspires her to keep going. And it's interesting that what inspires her also is suffering. And so what comes first for her is compassion. So she she has compassion 
for the suffering in the world. And she sees compassion for her own suffering. And so she wants to help others. And so from that place of suffering, it brings about faith, but it's accompanied by compassion. So this is one beautiful quality of the heart and mind that um, can help us on our path to have more faith. And it's one of the reasons why I can see how it is said that the proximate cause for faith to arise is suffering. There needs to be some compassion there too because it opens our hearts and we're able to have the faith that we can go on and do the next thing and do the next thing. And so a lot of her practice was about opening to that, um, that place of more faith for her to keep going in her life. So sometimes we don't have faith in ourselves, so we kind of need to borrow um, the faith from our teachers. And that's why, remember I told you the other evening, or I guess it was the beginning when I said taking refuge in the Sangha is really taking refuge in those who have realized the Four Noble Truths, and especially the Noble Truth of the end, the cessation of suffering, because they know that place. And uh, I may know, I may be acquainted with some of them, but I don't know for sure. They say only a Buddha would really know a fully enlightened being. Um, But I think that I've met some, or, you know, a a few, maybe. And... um, I remember them. And so um, my teachers maybe have some reach, some degree of that. So I remember them a lot. And when I um, have to borrow someone's faith, I sometimes remember, um, you know, my teacher Upandita died last year. And when I would have a hard time... I'd remember him kind of standing in back of me because sometimes I'd be in the hall and he'd come in the hall kind of looking after us or in the eating hall and because um, when we had to practice while eating also. So the dining hall was a place where you practiced eating meditation and he would come around and stand in back of me or in back of others too and he would just see if you were eating enough yeah, in that kind of care for us. And if he, if he saw you were taking little, he'd ask them to bring more food and to offer the food to you. Um, so just remembering his compassion. And I would remember him standing behind me. And then it's sort of like, you know, he would have his robes. Um, he would have robes on one side and he'd be holding them up. And it was kind of like an archangel in a way, being from the Catholic tradition. And it was so lovely to, to have that feeling about him. So when I remember those who have come to any degree of, of enlightenment, I, I remember him. And also Manindra and, and the others that I, I don't really know from time immemorial. And um, when he died, they asked me to say something about him so they could do a little publication about it. So I, I said, well, just thought, just uh, spontaneously, he was like my North Star. That, that was Upandita because he had such strength. And he was like a shining light for me. And when, I, when he died, it was as if the North Star left the sky. But... I remembered that he would always say that um, for us as yogis, we had to look to ourselves. That the Buddha solved his own problem, now you have to solve yours. He would say like that. And uh, at the time of his death, the Buddha said something like, be a light unto yourself. And so, you know, it was like, his death really brought me to looking more inwardly. So that was a great thing for me to be able to feel that I could, 
use his faith in me, but also um, that it pointed back to my own faith in myself. So faith in in oneself is like uh, the thing that we have to um, remember most. It said that there are three areas of faith we have to pay attention to. Faith in, uh, in our teachers, so therefore we really have to be careful the teachers we choose. We really have to be, have faith in, um, and how, you know, how they are in, in their lives, the de- dedication they've made to the Dharma and, and how they're representing the Dharma. And sometimes, you know, there have been wonderful teachers, but we kind of wonder how, you know, I remember back in the 70s I was asking uh, uh, Manindraji, about a certain teacher who actually had some wonderful books out that I was reading. Um, and he was in the Tibetan tradition. But there was a lot of you know, question marks about him. And Manindra knew this person, and he said to me, a perfect rose can come from an imperfect giver. And he said, when you can't look to the teacher, look to the teachings. So that really stood with me, stayed with me. So faith in ourselves is the third one. Faith in the teachings, faith in our teachers, faith in ourselves. And that's the one we really have to hone in on. So one of the things they say about faith is that its function is to enter into. It's almost like it's to enter into or through a new gate or enter into the unknown and what they say in the scriptures, it's like setting out across a flood. And that simile of the flood is um, a lot like, uh, means a lot like uh, the hindrances that we have to face in our lives, the defilements within us. Facing and overcoming the difficulties of fear and doubt. And so when I was reading over my notes about crossing the flood, it reminded me of the time I needed to do that. And it was a really difficult time, a long time ago in my life, where um, I really learned about that I had the courage to do it, that I was doing it not for my own benefit, but for others too. And so I carried that into my life on the spiritual path. And I think of those times when I feel like I can't carry on. And it was a time when I was um, a very young mother and I didn't know what I was getting into, but I found myself in the Philippines. That's a long story, no need to those details. But I found myself in the Philippines, which is my motherland, and um, I had three small children, and I had to leave. I had to evacuate myself and my children from the Philippines during martial law of the Marcos area, the Ferdinand Marcos area. I guess you all remember that. And so um, what happened during that time was two of my children were born in the Philippines. One was born in America, and I went to the Philippines with that child. And um, I was connected to a very prominent, political, wealthy family. And for a lot of reasons, I decided to leave with my children. And I needed the help to leave the country because um, two of my children were not allowed to leave. They were Philippine citizens. So I had to get the U.S. Embassy to help me. And it was harrowing what I had to go through um, to leave the Philippines. And I had to get all of this things ready, secret from my family that I was in connected with at that time. So when I finally got it all together, I made the announcement that I'm leaving with the three children. I was in my 20s. I had no idea what I was doing. I had to cross this ocean and I took that leap of faith. It's like there was nothing else I could do. Otherwise, 
there was some danger there for me and the children. And I didn't want to live that life. And I did it. You know, I crossed the ocean. There, it took a lot of patience because it took months to be able to get out of the country, to get my children to have American citizenship. And it was harrowing. And um, at that time, I guess I, I just had a lot of um, that kind of faith that there was no place else to go. I just had reached my edge. And I knew that I'm not going back. I'm not staying here. I have to go into the unknown. And um, it's why I came to the Dharma, because of suffering. It's what brought me to this path, actually. So every time I remember that I reach an edge and I needed to cross a flood, you know, there's some, some bit of like, I can do it. I did similar things in the past. So sometimes I'm a little bit hesitant, but most of the time I know I can do it. So there must be, I mean, you all, each of you have gotten to this point in your life. No matter even how young you are, you've already faced many things already, that you've reached your edge and you've gotten past it, right? And a lot of you are a lot older, uh, like some of us, and um, we've gotten through a lot and we've gotten to this place. And it hasn't been easy, but we're here. And there's no going back now, like Trungpa Rinpoche said. You know, you can't go back anymore. No matter how hard it is right now, there's no going back. We, we just have to continue. So it's really trusting that unfolding process of bringing awareness to that next moment and that next moment and that next moment. And really that's all it takes. It's just that one moment at a time. Sometimes like um, in the days when I was really young on the path, like in my 20s or my 30s, um, I would take (laughs) a walking path and I would say, at the beginning of the path, I would say, from here to the end of the path, perfect mindfulness. Mm-hmm. And it wouldn't happen, of course. You know, it would be like, there would only be like two steps at the most, and it would, the mind would go off. And so then I got really practical, and I would say, okay, just from here to there, just that little bit. And even that little bit, you know, that the mind would go off. In those days, I didn't realize that where it went off to, I could be mindful of. You know, I just thought I always had to come back to a step or something wrong. We're kind of trying to let you know more and more now that wherever it goes to, that's where you can place the mindfulness. So I was, had the thought that I just had to be perfectly with each step. So little by little, you know, I would have a little leaf that I would go to or a little rock, and pretty soon that little rock or that little leaf would be just my next step. Because that's really practical. That's what we need to have the faith to go just that far. And then just the next moment far. The next breath. The next whatever, wandering mind. The next bit of dukkha. So letting um, awareness show the way on the path. So it was um, recently, I think it was um, not last year, was t- in 2015, I took my second walk on the Camino de Santiago. And um, that's in Spain. How many of you know that? It's like many, there are many routes that go to um, the city where St. James's bones are said to be. Um, interred there, the Santiago de Compostela, in on the west coast of not the coastline, but near the west of Spain. So um, this was my second time to go, and uh, I decided with a friend of mine, the same nun friend I went with the first time, 
to go on, um, to take a longer route. So this time we started 300 miles away from the destination. And the previous time we started 200 miles away from the destination. So I'm taking it a bit at a time. And we took what's called the, the um, French route. Have any of you been on the Camino? Okay. So um, it's from, from the north of Spain is that French route. And, and it comes all the way across Spain in, into the city of Santiago. But we started in the middle of Spain. And so I, I'm not um, a big athlete, but I have perseverance. I can, I can walk far, and I, I can really do, take one step at a time. And sometimes we get to a place, we got to a place where my friend um, say, would say to me, Viranyani, she would say, Kamala, look, look up there. You see that one mountain range and the other one? going up, we're going to be on that second mountain range at the end of the day. And I would say, no. I, I just really couldn't believe her. And she said, we are. It's, not, it's really not that far. You know, we're just going to take this, this particular route. And she was a great navigator. And I said, okay, I, I'm not sure I believe you, but I have the faith that I can get from one coffee stop to another, basically. <laughs> Spain has really good coffee. So um, that's what we did. I would just go one step at a time, and you know we'd have these stops along the way where we rested a little bit, and then we'd start up again. And so at the end of the day, we would actually get there, you know, and we'd get to that place there. It would be high, and she would say, "This is a place I want you to turn around and look down, and do you see that that particular." whatever it was, antenna down there or that little village down, that's where we came from. And I'd look down there and it was really unbelievable that that was possible. And all along the way there was just these yellow arrows pointing the way. Like, it's interesting that they've got these yellow arrows that, okay, you turn here now. And we would just trust that. And... um, you know, sometimes we'd have to look at the map, but most of the time we could just find the yellow arrows and it would show the way. Or there'd be other um, peregrinos, they would, people who were pilgrims, and they would say, oh, go this way, or this is more, this vista is nicer. And it, it would really be wonderful. They, along the way, they would say, buen camino, buen camino, that means uh, have a good walk or... Um, Camino means the road, you know, may it be a good one, something like that. And it would be like wishing well all along the way. We'd have metta, all, and we'd say it. So maybe along the way you'd say buen camino. Um, I would say there, were, there was well over 100 times in 300 miles that I said buen camino. So there was all that well-wishing coming from my heart. Really wonderful. So... It, it's just the walk, you know, the continuity, the perseverance, the faith that you have to take one step at a time, the willingness to venture into what the unknown might be, which is maybe just a little step forward, <laughs> and just allowing that one bit of dukkha to come up to reveal something that needs to be revealed underneath. So... It's been challenging um, to go through that time and to, to walk those miles. And on the second walk, I saw a lot more than I saw on the first walk. And, and so I was just more aware. So I want to read this poem um, by David White. And to end, and it's really about life and faith in ourselves as we take the, the twists and turns and the rolling hills of life and the mountains that we kind of tackle sometimes, the ups and downs. So he calls this poem Santiago, the road seen, then not seen, the hillside hiding, 
then revealing the way you should take, the road dropping away from you as if leaving you to walk on thin air, then catching you, holding you up when you thought you would fall. And the way forward always in the end, the way that you followed, the way that carried you into your future, that brought you to this place, no matter that it sometimes took your promise from you, no matter that it had to break your heart along the way, the sense of having walked from far inside yourself out into the revelation to have risked yourself for something that seemed to stand both inside you and far beyond you, that called you back to the only road in the end you could follow, walking as you did in the rags of love and speaking in the voice that by night became a prayer for safe arrival. So may that be so for each one of us. So let's sit for a few moments and let those concepts dissolve. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.